Welcome to the St. Andrew Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. No matter who you are, where you've been, what you believe, or whether you even believe at all, you belong here. Friends, today's reading comes to us from the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew's Gospel is often called the Teacher's Gospel because it focuses so heavily on the teaching ministry of Jesus and emphasizes the need of faith leaders to understand and to teach the words and the works of God. Our selection this morning comes from a teaching block contained within the third of five teaching discourses contained within Matthew's Gospel, covering verses 1 through 53 of chapter 13. Scholars call this block of the the text itself the parabolic discourse because it presents several parables discussing the kingdom of God. Our parable today is known as the parable of the weeds or the tares. Like most parables, it has been interpreted in several ways throughout the centuries, all of which no doubt contain some measure of truth. Also, like most parables, it's packed with meaning and defies one single narrative interpretation. Hear now the reading of the parable from Matthew, chapter 13, verses 24 through 30. He put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to someone who sowed good seed in his field. But while everybody was asleep, an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared as well. And the slaves of the householder came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? Where then did these weeds come from? He answered, an enemy has done this. The servant said to him, then do you want us to go and to gather them? But he replied, no, for in gathering the weeds, you would uproot the wheat along with them. Let both of them grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, collect the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Thus ends the reading. Satisfy me till I am quiet and confident in the work of the Spirit. I cannot see you satisfy me.
So this week, we continue our sermon series exploring some of Jesus' most radical parables. And yes, for the 20th week in a row, we are reading from Matthew. Sorry about that. As we learned last week, radical, as Rev. Amy explained in this sense, is not an exercise in wandering off to extreme edges. Instead, it is a return to the roots or the source of belief. And hopefully, our examination of these parables will guide us back to our roots as followers of Christ, and over the next few weeks, they might even offer us a blueprint for how we might radically transform ourselves and the world around us. The early 20th century journalist, essayist, and satirist Henry Louis Minkin, he once said that for every complex problem, there is an answer that is, quote, neat, plausible, and wrong. To be sure, he wasn't explicitly referring to biblical interpretation, but he might as well have been. Because one of the challenges of responsible interpretation is, as it were, to suspend belief, setting aside any presumed clear and simple and often wrong meaning. As we do with any text then, we must look beyond the obvious presenting issues that may preoccupy us in a moment in order to discover what might be lying deeper. What are the more telling issues in ourselves, our circumstances, and thereby cultivate more fertile ground for, full, for fertile uh, com, uh, cultivation and conversation? And beloved, I would submit that this deep dialogue is crucial all the time in a worthwhile exercise for all of us and one that we must be continuously mindful of. The Apostle Paul reminded his young student, Timothy, when he wrote, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Continue in these things, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and your hearers. After all, look, when we approach text and we are simply lazy on the one hand or too bored or afraid or distracted on the other, we will become what one 20th century minister called expositors of the obvious. Assuming meaning, borrowing application, and beloved, that kind of obvious exposition is almost invariably self-congratulatory and less than helpful. And this advice is especially applicable when we approach the parables of Jesus. Parables as a teaching tool are anything but straightforward, and as Rev. Amy pointed out, they defy any singular interpretation. Parables, when, uh, when not taken as simply spoon-fed data, not as direct answers, but rather as invitations, can continue to inform our lives, even as our lives continue to open up to the parables themselves and offer us new insight and reading. However, that fluidity, that lack of singularity and meaning, well, that's unsettling. And it calls for due diligence, and it calls for hearts that are open and minds that are open. New Testament scholar Dr. Amy Jo Levine reminds us that, quote, 
religion has been defined as designed to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. We do well to think of the parables of Jesus, she writes, as doing the afflicting. Therefore, if we hear a parable and we think, I really like that, or we even fail to take any challenge, well, then we're not listening well enough, she says. Well, beloved friends, after wrestling all week with this parable and speaking to Amy on several occasions, I can assure you I might be on to something because I can report that I am sincerely afflicted. It's sincerely afflicted. This morning's reading is, is one of three parables, right? The, and this one leaves us with more questions than it does answered. It's one of three in chapter 13 that deal with seeds and sowings, beginning what scholars call, as Amy pointed out, the parabolic discourse, the third of five major teaching courses in this gospel. The first parable, you probably all remember, it talks of good seeds and they're throwing on different types of soil and all of them take root to varying degrees based upon the soil that they fall upon. The final parable we heard last week from Rev. Amy is the parable of the mustard seed, this little bitty seed that blossoms into this large bush big enough for the birds of the air to nest in. Both of those parables, by the way, are all found in three of all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And nestled right in between is our parable this morning, notably only found in Matthew, only found in Matthew. And coupled with the first parable regarding the sower, this second parable feels kind of like a continuation of the first as we read it, with some significant differences. The parable of the sower, we had one type of seed, good seed, right? And it was scattered all over the place by one good sower. In our parable this morning, you might have heard, we have two distinct types of seed, one good, one bad. And we have two different sowers, one good and one evil one, or the enemy as it says. The good sower plants good seeds. The evil sower riddles the field with bad seeds while everyone is asleep. The plants spring up and the befuddled servants see the weeds and they're not quite sure what's going on and they're not quite sure what to do about it, quite frankly. They go and ask their boss, did you not sow good seeds in the field? But more importantly, they ask, do you want us to pull the weeds out? And to their surprise, and perhaps to ours too, so the, the household guy just says, nope, no. For in gathering the weeds, you would uproot the wheat along with them. Afete sunax an estai amphotira, he says in the Greek. Let them both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I'll tell the reapers, collect the weeds first and bind them and Burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. That's it. End of story. Feel afflicted yet? I do. I mean, it leaves a lot of questions. Who's this bad sower? How did the good sower even know about the weeds or who planted them if he was asleep? Why on earth would you leave the weeds in place? Good and evil side by side, coexisting without a set of checks and balances, without resolute criteria for adjudicating which is which, without a sense of qualifications and quantifications that might provide some certain conclusions to ease our little moral consciousness? Where does this evil even come from? Is it as simple as assigning it to an alternate being? 
It is as easily discernible as we tend to think. Is it so readily recognized as we want to believe? Are you feeling afflicted yet? Well, I plan to cover all of those in painstaking detail. So if you're not afflicted yet, you will be shortly. I'm, just, I'm not going to do that. I'm just kidding. But admittedly, right? I mean, this parable is one of the most familiar ones in all of the New Testament. And its importance is evident in the way that Christian writers and thinkers have employed it throughout history to illustrate certain theological convictions throughout the years. For example, my beloved St. Augustine of Hippo referred to this parable as an analogy for the church, arguing that within the body of Christ reside both wheat and weeds. He writes these words, I tell you of a truth, my beloved, even in these high seats there is both wheat and tares, and among the laity there is wheat and tares. Let the good tolerate the bad, he says. Let the bad change themselves and imitate the good. Some 1,200 years later, the great reformer Martin Luther cited this parable, this parable to argue that true believers and heretics must coexist until the harvest. He writes these words, from this Observe what raging and furious people we have been these many years in that we desired to force others to believe. The Turks with the sword, heretics with fire, the Jews with death, and thus outroot the tares by our own power as if we were the ones who could reign over hearts and spirits and make them pious and right, which God's word alone must do, he says with conviction. Now look, very often, this parable is taught in one of three ways. A, it lets us self-identify with the wheat, because nobody wants to be a weed after all. It gives us supposed, the supposed faithful permission to identify not only the weeds, but the source of the weeds and their certain doom. And C is my favorite. It gives us palliative counsel to patience by means of a self-satisfied certainty. We will be saved they will be burned, yeah? yeah? Before you shake your head now and discount those interpretive approaches, we might want to begin by admitting that this little parable shines a really bright light on our inevitable human preoccupation with drawing lines between who is in and who is out. And it's interesting, to me anyway, how naturally divisive we little human creatures are. I mean, how many ways do we set up lines of division? Think about it. Here's a little test for you. I am different from you because blank. You got it? I mean, there's probably a thousand ways that you could answer that question, right? And that mania, it creeps into almost every aspect of our life. Education, family, culture, even our clothing choices, yes, are often employed as criteria for who is out or who is in in this circle or that group, right? And I get it. Look, some of our attempts to segment and differentiate are trivial, but the total effect is always the same, separation. And separation, when left unchecked and unbalanced, coupled with the egotism inherent in every human being, well, that breeds a lack of charity, and it creates social distance. And Ultimately, social indifference or just outright apathy in its very worst form as prejudice, we even virtually deny others a shared humanity. So let us not be too harsh on these household servants within the parable. We, like them, often want to weed out the dangerous elements, especially in our churches. Whoops. 
I mean, matters of behavior or theological or biblical orientation, all these things, they become fodder for litmus tests of all kinds of varieties. Elements within our church communion seem forever plagued by how broadly or how narrowly we should draw boundaries around the church. Whom, whom can we afford to let in? Who has to go, right? Um, who is accepted by God? Who's not? Why and why not? Beloved, the very act of asking these questions assumes that it is our job to draw up specifications regarding the wideness of our welcome. And look, here's the hard part. I want y'all to help me with this. Sometimes we need to pull the weeds up, don't we? I'm just throwing it out there. Sometimes we might need to pull the weeds up. I mean, look, most scholars agree that the weed referenced in this parable is known as bearded darnel. And I have to tell you, there is nothing redeeming about bearded darnel. Its roots surround the roots of good plants, sucking up precious nutrients and scarce water. It makes it impossible to root them out without damaging the good plants. The black seeds of the darnel carry a poisonous fungus that can cause everything from hallucinations to death. Yeah, I, I don't want that in my front yard, right? I want to pull that out. And look, without a doubt, there is an element within this parable that affords us an opportunity to talk seriously about the presence of evil in this world and the source of that evil. But I have to tell you, that's not what captured my heart and attention this week as I read and reread this. What caught my attention was the master's understated but radical and revolutionary response. Afete sunox an estai am futira, he says. Let them grow together. Let them grow together. It is not your business or even my business, he says, to go around pulling weeds. Let them grow together. But why? Why let the weeds remain? After all, couldn't they threaten the more desirable grains? Well, here's another interesting little fact about bearded darnel. Ironically, it is also known as false wheat, or sometimes called a cheat weed, because it is almost indistinguishable from real wheat when it is green. And maybe that's one of the lessons here. Maybe that's the first one. It is a caution against rushing to judgment because we cannot always tell what is a good plant and what is not. Maybe Jesus knew from the very beginning that in every community of faith it would be, as my beloved Augustine stated, a mixture of wheat and weeds. And the truth is, my beloved friends, every church has a few weeds living among the righteous grains. Let's just say it. It's a mixture, right? But, you know, I suppose that's, that's what all of us really are individually. A little bit of wheat, a little bit of tares. Maybe before we start pointing fingers and passing judgment, we would do well to remember a little limerick I found this week. There is so much good in the worst of us and so much bad in the best of us that it hardly becomes any of us to talk about the rest of us. You know, one of the reasons why it's currently popular to be spiritual but not religious is that many feel that the institutional church is considered too stifling for a person's religious growth. But I think there's a more important reason, and it has to do with the presence of hypocrites in the church. I'm just going to say it. People that say one thing and act in another way. If only they weren't there, you know, then, then I'd go to church. If I could find a church where people agreed with my politics and theology, well, then I'd go. Yes, if I could only find the perfect church, then I'd go to church. Well, I got a little secret for you. 
If you find the perfect church, don't go because you will ruin it. <laughs> yeah, think about that one for a minute, didn't you? Yeah. I mean, look, this desire for purity is, is found in all of our communities. It's, we see it being played out even in our own denomination, struggling to make sense of particular issues, any number of issues. Will they stay? Will they break apart? And, you know, I got to tell you, friends, often these kinds of issues are, um, they deal with power, um, who's getting to control the, the theological agendas. But I think also there might be an idealism present in some communities that lead them to believe that if only they could get rid of those pesky troublemakers, if they could be weeded out, well, then the church could get on with its mission, right? But who makes us the judge, I wonder? I don't know. Yes, it would be a peaceful church if there were no people. Because if there were no people, there would be no problems. But of course, I guess there wouldn't be a church either. And so here we are, the church of Jesus Christ right here. We are members of an imperfect body made perfect through the grace of Jesus Christ. But it is what it is, is my grandma would say. Within our circles, there are saints and sinners, believers and skeptics, the lost and found, the wonders and the wonders, families of all shapes and sizes, and people from every point along the spiritual spectrum. That sound familiar? It should. Jesus says, let them grow up together, because if you start casting people out, you're liable to throw out the good with the bad. In fact, you might find yourself on the short end of that stick. Let those that don't belong to each other grow together. Let those that don't fit into each other's neat little fields of categories grow together. Let the wheat and the weeds grow together. Let them grow together because the line between weed and wheat is much, much blurrier than we'd like to think, if it even exists at all, just as it is in the crossing of a border that turns a plant into a weed. So it is that simple cultivation, love and kindness that transforms a weed into a valued plant. And I think there is perhaps another strange wisdom in this word of restraint that pushes all of us away from premature clarity regarding such matters of discernment. And it makes room for what I heard one theologian say, for a holy and purposeful ambiguity. It sounds good, doesn't it? And look, this is not a vague, kind of ungrounded, whatever kind of ambiguity, but an ambiguity that is both wise and intentional. In our impatience with others, I think we often want to bring matters to a head and just determine who's in or who's out. Let's get on with it. But the God that we glimpse in this parable models for us an infinite patience that, that frees us to get on with the, crucial, with the crucial business of loving, or at least living with each other. And often in the space created by that patience, it's not just others, but it is we ourselves who are welcomed into a larger reality as we cultivate relationship. I think in this sense, we are born and reborn every single day as we cultivate relationships. Our world, you see, it, it spins and spins and swirls around us. And on a journey such as this, I have to tell you, it's not our job to determine who is within or who is beyond God's grace and attention. It's rather our job to imagine everyone, everyone is belonging to God. And therefore, with all the strength that we can muster, 
to endeavor to embrace through Christ God's holy and purposeful ambiguity. Now, one more thing before we go. I feel like I need to address this. I want to say this. All of this, this is all God's garden. All of it. And I have learned, friends, that God errs on the side of growth rather than punishment. But as I mentioned earlier, our tendency is to read a great deal of judgment into this parable. Remember that eventual burning and binding and burning of the weeds? Yeah, it it becomes a metaphor for condemnation and judgment. It's there. We can't deny that. But to me, it's not a promise of judgment. It is a promise of harvest. That is what I see. Harvest, you see, is about feeding people. It is about sustenance and bounty and abundance. Our rapture-warped minds and end-times-affected spirituality, however, have turned this idea of harvest into something to be feared, some great separation, right, between who goes up, who goes down. But that's not what a harvest is about, beloved. Harvest is about bringing communities together. And it is hard work to be sure, but it is something to be celebrated and not to be feared. In the end, you see, by the time the harvest arrives, Mm, No one is concerned with weeds any longer. They are concerned and thrilled, I would say, at the bounty and abundance springing from the land. They are concerned about putting up food for lean months. They are excited to see a season's work come to fruition and bring forth abundance. I think weeds are only a concern for those who can't see the joy of the harvest. And look, I can't deny it's in the text one day. I don't want to get too preachy. A harvest is coming. A harvest celebration is coming, the master says. And all this business about wheat and weeds, well, it's all going to be settled. But I would submit to you that that is an afterthought in the parable. It is a notion designed to help us let go of our desire to decide who is in or who is out. It functions to help us release our desire to uproot and deport, to separate, to discard. And in so doing, It should refocus our attention at the command of the master. Let them grow together. About a year ago, my beloved wife sent me a quote from a podcast, y'all. She listens to so many podcasts. It's just so many, so many. But this one really moved me. It says, quote, for all our obsession with safe spaces, stay with me, there are not a whole lot of spaces where people feel safe because they are so worried about doing or saying the wrong thing. Worry over including someone who some think should be excluded or excluding someone who some think should be included. And it's just absolutely paralyzing, the guy said. And that resonated with me this week. I don't know why. I kept thinking, do we throw those words around loosely like safe space in ways that limit connection and cooperation and collaboration and conversation? My wife asked me a profound question, and I wrote it down. I'm still thinking about it. Have we conflated, she asked, engagement with agreement to our own detriment? She told me that in her work environment, they use a term called brave space. Have you heard of this word? Brave space. It is a term coined by a beautiful 
womanist and contemplative activist by the name of Mickey Scott Bay Jones. And I'll leave you with her words and her call to action. She writes, together we will create a brave space because there is no such thing as a safe space. We exist in a real world. We all carry scars and we have all caused wounds. In this space, we seek to turn down the volume of the outside world and we amplify voices that fight to be heard elsewhere. We call each other to more truth and love and we have the right to start somewhere and continue to grow. We have the responsibility to examine what we think we know. And we will not be perfect. And this space will not be perfect. It will not always be what we wish it to be, but it will be our brave space together. And we will work on it side by side. Let both of them grow together. Let both of them grow together. Your takeaways for today. On our journey, it is not our job to determine who is within or who is beyond God's attention. It is rather our job to imagine everyone as belonging to God. God errs on the side of growth rather than punishment. Like God, we need to be more concerned with everything growing than just the right things growing. Because harvest is about feeding people and bounty and abundance. And it is something to be celebrated, not something to be feared. Let us pray. Generous and ever faithful God, you have spoken to us through your inspired word. Now grant us grace to be not mere hearers of your word, but doers also. Guide us from here by the light of your spirit that we might believe and act on what has been revealed to us today. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. If you'd like more information about our church or our vision to eradicate social isolation and disconnection by practicing the faithful presence of the incarnate Christ, please visit GoStAndrew.com. See you next week.